Thank you for downloading our podcast. The prophet Hosea receives a strange command from the Lord. The Lord tells him to take a woman of the night to keep it clean for the pulpit. He is to marry a woman who does not protect the marriage bed, and he is to build a house with this unfaithful woman. How can the Lord order a prophet to do something contrary to his own will? What is the purpose of this book? Overall, what is the prophet Hosea teaching us today? If we think back to the opening of Scripture and we think to the Garden of Eden, this tells us a lot about our condition, a lot about who we are when we think about Adam and Eve and Satan interacting with them at the fall. I mean, what is the very hope that Satan holds out for them? You can be like God on your own terms. You can determine what's right and wrong. Uh, You don't need God to say what needs to be done. And you can set the standard, and you can make God basically cowtail to your desires. This tells us something about ourselves, doesn't it? What, what alludes to us. The thought of placing ourselves above God, being holier than we are, holier than God himself, and making God serve us. Well, as we know the story that didn't end well, and Satan lied. Was quite the opposite. God was one who was not dominated by man, one seeding of this tree. The Lord showed his mighty hand. And so when we think about redemption and, and what happens in the Garden of Eden, we might want to think, well, we're better because we're redeemed and we have Christ. But this is where Hosea lays out the great scandal of redemption, and it really is scandalous. Because there are people who do not deserve any affection and love and are placed in guaranteed placement in the holy city of God. And so we might say, well, why is this this redemption so scandalous? Does this mean God compromises his holiness to bring this out? Well, what does that mean exactly? So as we look at this, I want to just simply divide uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 into two points where he hears the Lord's command once again, and then he goes and he obeys the Lord's command. And so let's begin as Hosea hears the Lord's command. The Lord is the one who has warned Israel that judgment is coming. He's warned them about their idolatry. He's warned them that they're going to face exile. But the Lord promises he will betroth them to him in faithfulness. And it's a wonderful promise of how the Lord is going to come to his people. And so we think, well, maybe his people, as the Lord takes them uh, to be his wife, that that maybe his people finally figured out, and and they're holy, and they're pure, and and, and there are people that really want to live for him. But we find that as the Lord goes on, he makes a radical promise that could lead us to that conclusion. Because in 2 verse 20, he says, they shall know me. Now remember we said knowing the Lord is not uh, knowing things about God. I mean, certainly we, we have to know our doctrines. We need to know who God is. We, we need to know what he's revealed about himself. But knowing the Lord isn't just knowing about God or concepts of God. It's truly taking hold of Christ by faith. You know, as Paul says in Romans 6, walking in that new life, being united to Christ, conscious that we are slaves of righteousness, redeemed and made alive, informed by Christ's resurrection. 
but that orients us as we go through this age. And so we, we have to see that, that knowing the Lord is more than just knowing about the Lord. But what this also tells us is that the Lord knows his people. Arguably, the Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. We think about sanctification in our own experience, don't we? Uh, we can see that maybe there's some issues going on. We go, we, we strive, we fight the good fight by the grace of God. Uh, the Lord delivers us and the Lord conforms us to his will. All of a sudden we realize there's more issues going on within us, right? And yet the Lord knows all these issues and far more issues than we understand. And so it's important to understand in Hosea that as the people know the Lord, the Lord knows his people. If we don't understand that concept, we, we will not see the graciousness and, and marvel at redemption, the scandal of the cross, and how glorious it ultimately is. We have to understand God knows us and knows us better than we know ourselves. But as Hosea goes on, we, we, we find how the Lord paints this picture once again. Because he tells Hosea to repeat the beginning of the story. But at the beginning of the story, remember we said that when Hosea was to take this wife, she was probably going to fall into adultery. We didn't really know if she was full-on an adulteress or if she gave herself over to prostitution. It, it seemed that that's where she was going to go. That, that was the presentation. Well, chapter 3, there is no mistake. The Lord says to Hosea to go and take this wife who is basically a lover of another man, an adulteress. This isn't someone that will potentially turn, but it's someone who is unfaithful. It's very clear. And as Hosea is to take this woman, we say, okay, well then, who is this woman? Is it Gomer? Is it another woman? Well, the implication is that it is Gomer. Because we have in 2 verse 7, what does she realize? She's the one who pursues her lovers, but eventually she says, you know what? I really should go back to my first husband. All this pursuit of, of falsehood and immorality, it's, it's not fulfilling. It, it doesn't give me the joy that I thought it would give me. But having my first lover, my first husband, that, that gave me fulfillment and joy. And so the Lord promised to rein in the stubborn heifer, right? He put a hedge around this, this heifer and made it so that she's going to go and, and travel in the wilderness and be recreated. So now in chapter 3, when he tells Hosea to go again to this woman, he's basically saying, go to this old woman, your ex-wife, that it seems that she's the ex-wife. Uh, she may have divorced him. We don't know the circumstances. Whatever the case, she's not in his home. Go, take her, pursue her. And notice that in verse 1, there is this implication of love going on, as love is used four times. In verse 1, Hosea is to go and love a woman. Second, a woman loved by another man. She's not committed to him. Third, the Lord loves the sons of Israel. Fourth, Israel loves the cakes of raisins. Now it's important to understand how love is functioning here. Because the affections are turned in different directions. The people of Israel, because as the Lord draws a correlation, this woman's like my people Israel. 
The Lord loves Israel, but Israel loves the cakes of raisins. The woman is loved by another man. She's not committed to Hosea. And so as this role play is going on, this is making explicit that this adulterous woman is God's people. This is us. We might say, well, it's just Israel. Israel's got issues. We're different. This is the Lord knowing who we are. We are a people who love the false gods. We are those who want to be loved by another. That's the reality of, of the Lord knowing us. He knows who we are. We're the ones who kid ourselves. We're the ones who try and prop ourselves up in our own self-righteousness, try and create our own laws, our own standards. But the reality is the Lord is saying, this is my people. The people who do not love me, the people who do not naturally long for me. Now this cakes of raisins, we don't exactly know what this means. We can find this as part of Israel's cults. We can find David himself being refreshed uh, by this as a delicacy. We can see it as an act of worship in 2 Samuel 6, where the Ark of the Covenant comes back and Israel partakes of this delicacy. But most likely, this is something that's associated with Baal worship is, is what we're kind of deducing from this. It's something that's part of their pagan idolatry. And so as Israel loves the cake of raisins, they would rather love their pagan idolatry than the true God. They would rather know the false gods than know the true God is what's going on here. This is how the Lord finds his people. This is who we are. But as he goes on, we find out what Hosea is to do. He is to buy her. Now there's speculation about what's going on here with Gomer. Some say that maybe there's been some sort of a divorce that has transpired. She's gone to her father. Her father has sold her into slavery. And now Hosea is going to buy out uh, the female slave. We, we don't fully understand people try and appeal to Exodus 21, 1 through 11, and try and equate this price to the same price in Exodus um, but we have to really make some jumps with the numbers to make it work. So the reality is, we don't know. What we do know is she is in a bad situation. And she is in a situation where she needs to be purchased. She cannot get herself out, herself out of this situation. She's in a position where she needs someone else to pay a price. Whether it's Hosea needing to pay another bridal price to the father, we don't fully know. But whatever the case, she is in a situation where she needs to be bought out. And why is she in this situation? Because she has sold herself into this. She is one who has sold herself out. She is not one who is seeking to honor the Lord. And so as the Lord is the one who comes and tells Hosea to buy her out, this is something that we can't minimize the significance of this. Because this is really role-playing the gospel, isn't it? It's the Lord paying the price so that his idolatrous, adulterous, immoral people can return to him. It's the Lord who's bearing the cost so that we can enter into a relationship with him. God hasn't compromised the relationship. God hasn't gotten himself into a situation where he needs to have us buy him out or prop him up. 
We are the ones who got ourselves in this situation. God's the one who bears the cost of redemption. So you think about the exit of Eden, Genesis 3, the promise of the Lord bringing about redemption and triumph in the seed of the woman. That's the picture that's going on here. Christ entering history, the scandal of the cross, kangaroo court, bearing the wrath of God so that the Lord's people can be raised to life and experience the benefits as Christ has overcome death and has triumphed. And so this is a promise and a picture of that new creation. Now it's important to remember verses 1 and 2 before we go on to 3 through 5. It is the Lord who comes to his people as he has drawn the correlation between the adulterous wife and the sons of Israel, his people, and how he comes to them, paying the cost, paying the redemption so they can have life. But going on then, Hosea then obeys the command. And when we go to verse 3, Hosea now is interacting with her, right? And he, he tells her what the expectation is. You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. And so she's going to be exclusive. She's going to live in fidelity. She's going to dwell in his house. She's not going to pursue other gods. And the prophet himself is going to remain faithful. Now when we hear this, if we, if we just jump to verse 3, we can say, well, redemption's conditional. It's up to me uh, to make sure that I'm faithful enough to deserve the Lord's grace and mercy, right? So if somebody takes you to Hosea 3, verse 3, they say, see, here's redemption. Uh, you need to show that you're faithful enough uh, to be worthy of God's redemption. But that's missing verses 1 and 2. Because we're, we're confusing these conditions with the transforming power of God. That's what the Lord wants us to understand. Why does Israel turn to the Lord? Because he's given her the new heart. He's given her the new desires, a new bent, new redemption. And so what's the call here? Well, the call is for us to have this exclusive relationship. Yes, there is a consciousness that we do pursue the Lord, that we want to live in Christ, that we want to bring glory to our God. As we've heard in chapter 1, uh, the Lord is the one who does discipline his people. Went through Hebrews 12, other passages. Push the boundaries of the Lord's grace. The Lord might give you exactly what you want. He might hand you over to your sin and, and give you those very things. And so what is the Lord then doing here? What, what is the promise? Well, as the Lord throughout Hosea has promised he will hedge his people in, he's the one who's going to redeem and give them life, that the Lord's disciplinary action is not the Lord just trying to crush us or destroy us. I mean, at the end of the day, is it really hard for God to crush us as mere creatures? I mean, we're those who are mere dust. We are mere mortals in his presence. God can merely give a command and, and we could just return right to the dirt instantly. It's not like that's a challenge for God. But what the Lord is doing here is he's assuring us that he is shaping us, he is molding us. The Lord is doing things within us that we may not like. And there's an exhortation here, a reminder, that we are to seek to conform to God. Uh, it's a consciousness 
But if you want to find joy in life, seek to live for the honor and glory of your Redeemer. That's where you find true joy and contentment in life. Seek to live for the honor and glory of your Redeemer who has redeemed you. Now if we say, well, maybe this is getting us outside the boundaries of what Reformed theology teaches, because some people say, well, the Reformed system, that just makes people into robots, where you just, you know, all of a sudden the spirit works and you no longer have desires and, and your will goes away, your desires go away. Uh, so it just makes us a bunch of robots. Well, the Canons of Dort reminds us in Head 5, Article 4, that we might fall into grievous sin. And it says, God may allow them to fall into these sins for whatever reason. Though he may incur a deadly guilt, grieve the spirit, interrupt the exercise of faith, grievously wound their conscience, sometimes lose, lose the sense of God's favor. So the canons of Dort is reminding us of what Hosea is laying out here. If we want to push the boundaries of God's grace and see if we can run from him, the Lord may allow us to do so. But the comfort we have in this is that it's not just the Lord letting us off the leash, but it's more of us being on a rubber band. Because the canons of Dort goes on to remind us that, well, the spirit might sort of be dormant in the sense that it's not prodding us like it normally is in our Christian walk that the Spirit's still there. And eventually, we will be renewed to repentance. And so, when Hosea's laying this out, and we hear this, and we understand the complexity of our desires and our redemption, certainly you have Israel showing we are not going to subdue the land, we are not going to be victorious. But there's also a reminder for us, don't push the boundaries of God's grace. Don't see how far you can run away and test the boundaries of what he's set for us. Because the Lord may allow you to get out of the hedge or he might broaden that hedge just a little bit and give you exactly what you want only to realize you don't want it. Much like Gomer pursuing her lovers, her false gods and saying, I don't want this anymore. This isn't fulfilling. This isn't joyful. And so that's what Hosea is talking about in chapter 3. By the Lord's recreative power, we have these new desires. And it's a reminder that we should want to live according to these new desires. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 6, as we read this morning. To consciously see ourselves as resurrected people, empowered by Christ to have that mindset we are a people who are triumphant in our Lord even as we experience the pain of sin, the common curse, and the struggle in this age. And so Hosea is exhorting us to live as we ought to live. Now as he goes on, he reminds us of how the children of Israel are going to dwell. They will dwell with, uh, as we find in verse 4, they're not going to have a king, they're not going to have a prince, they're not going to have a sacrifice, they're not going to have a pillar, they're not going to have an ephod or teraphims, household gods uh, is the way we render it, but sometimes you read teraphim, all that is is a Hebrew uh, being brought into English, but it just literally means household gods. Now in terms of this, why, why is this so important? Well, what's happening is Israel's worship has been so perverted 
that, that they're not seeing their God through their worship. When, when, when we come to worship, we, we want to see our God. We don't want to trust in the means of grace. We don't want to trust in the preaching of the gospel. We, we want to trust in our God and see our God, right? We, we can do that. We can trust in so many things that may be good and wholesome. Sacrifices in their context, good and wholesome. They were. But yet we find that as Israel started trusting in them, it's no longer good and wholesome because they're not seeing their God. And so that's what's being called to our attention. So the Lord's going to rip all this away from them. So in terms of them going into the wilderness, going into exile, we're learning again what, what is the point of wilderness. Yes, it's a time of testing. We certainly see that. Uh, we can see that in Hebrews 3, 1 Corinthians 10, where the Apostle Paul recalls Israel in the wilderness. But it's also a time of reforming. It's a time of, of, of wooing. It's a time of the Lord bringing his people back to them and, and reshaping their priorities. That's what Hosea is speaking of here. So the Lord's going to rip all these things away from them. The, the ephod uh, we can find in Judges 8 verse 27 where Gideon makes the ephod. Israel worships it. But yet we find even the Levites have an ephod. So again, these aren't necessarily bad things. Now the no king and prince. This is something else in Israel's history that tells us something about our hearts, isn't it? Because when Israel wanted a king, they didn't say, we remember the promise in Genesis 49 where Jacob gives a promise to Judah that there will be a king. We need to be refreshed in this. Come on, Samuel. We need to be refreshed in this king in the line of David. No. What did they say? We want a king like the nations. We want a king to lead us into war. We want a king who's mighty. And Samuel says, do you really want this? He's going to send your sons into war. He's going to tax you to death. Uh, he's going to exploit your sons and daughters. You, you really think that this is a good thing? And they said, no, we want a king like the other nations. Well, Israel got what they wanted, didn't they? Then when you look at the history of the kingship of Israel, certainly there's some kings that bring about positive reform in Israel and Judah. But didn't I just make an important distinction? Israel and Judah. The kingdom's divided. And when you think of how the kings have exploited, how there have been assassinations, and how the people of God placed in Canaan to model heaven and show its uniqueness and holiness by the command of God. And as a communal people, how they failed. And the kings have become like the kings of the world, pursuing political ambition, assassinating one another, conspiring together, all sorts of immorality. And so the Lord's saying he's going to remove this from them. They're not going to have the king or the prince. And so you think, well, is the Lord's purpose done? Is it finished? But notice the great promise. The great promise is that the Lord's purpose is not finished. That he will bring his people back together. They will return, they will seek the Lord. Now again, this is like Christ uh, saying, seek the kingdom it's, it's seeking, pursuing a consciousness of wanting to pursue the Lord. So, so why do we do this? Again, verses 1 and 2. The Lord coming to his people, we love because he's first loved us. There's going to be a consciousness. The seeking is going about desiring to find what you're going to find. 
And there's a couple things that are significant in terms of the Lord their God and David their king. Because it's the Lord your God or their God, our God, who's going to establish this king. Now obviously we can say with David that uh, this is Christ and pointing to Christ and how Christ is the one who's going to, to bring about the redemptive purpose and Christ is going to fulfill this promise and this utterance from Genesis 49 where it was made explicit, 2 Samuel 7 where the Lord gives a covenant to David. But there's something else. There's one king. Do you notice that in the text? This is a fundamental promise. It's no longer northern kingdom, southern kingdom. It's no longer Israel, Jerusalem. God's not content with a redemption that's 80 or 90% complete. Like, yeah, well, Israel still has two kingdoms, uh, but at least, you know, they're, they're doing better. This is a promise of complete and utter redemption where the Lord's people will join together walking with contently within his hedge hemmed in following him pursuing him in the one king that the Lord is going to take his divided people and bring them together the Lord is going to see to it that it's not two nations two kingdoms two groups but one group Join together in the one king. Notice the change then as he speaks of the latter days. Now again, this is something that uh, when we look at this in terms of prophetic writings, we can see a twofold fulfillment of this. Uh, we can see Christ manifesting the last days or part of the last days and waiting for the ultimate fulfillment. We can think of Peter's Pentecost sermon, for instance, where we think of Peter taking the language of the day of the Lord and showing how it's partially applied and then there's going to be the full application when Christ comes again. So what's being spoken of here is like what we find with Malachi or Micah 4 verse 1 of the latter days that are coming and the victory that the Lord's going to show. When we talk about the first coming of Christ, we speak of this as being a time of humiliation, right? Death, resurrection, and then we think about the last time when it's the public uh, exaltation and glorification of Christ when he brings about the definitive and final victory in the battle of Armageddon. But we have to understand what is the significance of Christ coming in his humiliation. This is also why I wanted to read from Romans 6 for the reading of the law. Because it's not just that Christ has lived, suffered, died, and has been raised. We, we, we can't see that as, as a defeatist uh, view in our Christian life. Christ being raised from the dead confirms the promises and word of God. He, he, he affirms and confirms that exclusive relationship. It's a very scandal of what's going on and the beauty of what's going on. We are a people prone to harlotry. A people who have a natural propensity to pursue things other than God. The Lord knows this. He knows who we are. This is why when Christ enters history, entering in, in, in the flesh as a God-man, coming to his people, he's jumping in the cesspool of sin, if you will, without being contaminated by the sin. I mean, think about how holy God is. That he can walk in our midst 
and not be contaminated by us. He can die on the cross and take our sins upon himself and not be contaminated. And he can raise to, be raised to life. This perfect son of God, the perfect triumphant Messiah, securing our life, giving us new life, so that we are those who are moved out of the cesspool, out of harlotry, and called to live unto him. This is why when Hosea ends here in verse 5, that we come to the fear of the Lord. It is God who knows us in the beginning, verses 1 and 2, to the transformation in verse 5, that we begin to truly know the Lord. Not just know about him, but know the fear of the Lord. Of I want to live in reverence and love and respect and exclusivity. Because this is my God who has come to redeem. He has taken the unworthy and made them worthy. He has taken the unfaithful harlot and turned her heart to such a degree that now she desires to live in this exclusive relationship to the living God. If people ask, why do we put off idolatry? Why, why do we want to put off those, those false gods? Because the true God of heaven has acted. And he didn't act on our terms. He came to us when we didn't even know fully that we needed him. And he redeemed. And so in conclusion then, when we began with that question, how can we say a redemption is so scandalous when it's accomplished by a holy God? It's scandalous when we understand where God finds us. People who have sold out. People in adulterous relationships. In the sense that we love other gods, we love other things, we find other comforts. We don't look to him. We're a people who have sold out to the core of our being. A people who have rejected him, a people who have hated him. Sad, tragic when you say these things out loud. In fact, it says somewhere, the man naturally hates God and his neighbor. Think about that situation and scenario and how God comes to such a people and he walks in the midst of such a people and he is sent away again by such a people to the cross and rejected and he emerges triumphant. And he transforms and pours out his spirit. So as people gather together, assembling before the one king, wandering in the wilderness by his leadership, by one greater than Moses, one greater than David, the one who confirms Moses' word, the one who fulfills a promise made to David, and the one who confirms our redemption. And he does all this walking in the midst of a scandalous people without compromising his holiness. In fact, he is so holy, so awesome, that he begins to sanctify us and conform us to his holiness. Let us walk after our God. Let us see the marvel and beauty of our redemption. Let us live as living sacrifices unto him, as a people called in this exclusive relationship, not out of tyranny, not out of dread, not out of threat, but out of a true joy. Because we have come to fear the Lord by his grace and his mercy and his redemption. Let us walk in Christ as a people who have moved from death to life in him.
Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is urcbelgrade.com, to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.